Hello again. Welcome back to the Future Cities podcast. I am Jason Sauer, your host again for this month. And on this episode, I am joined by Dr. Elsa Anderson of the Cary Institute, which bills itself as a nonprofit environmental research organization. Elsa has worked on a variety of topics regarding plant biodiversity, which is more or less the variety of plant species and their abundance, uh, in particular in urban spaces. And in this episode, I wanted to talk with her mostly about her work focused on the links between urban biodiversity and vacant lots. I hope you enjoy. Uh, welcome back to the Future Cities podcast. I'm Jason Sauer, and I am here today talking with uh, Dr. Elsa Anderson. Elsa, can you please talk about yourself a bit? Where are you from? What's your background? Uh, what kind of research or work do you do? How did you get into it? Awesome. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Jason, for having me today. Um, so like Jason mentioned, I'm Elsa Anderson. I am originally from Chicago. I grew up in the suburbs, spent some time in the city, did both my master's and my PhD at different institutions downtown. And really kind of through that experience, both living there and studying there, developed this really deep passion for understanding cities. My interest and background, kind of academically speaking, was in biology. My bachelor's is in animal science. I thought for a long time I wanted to be a vet, um, but got more interested in kind of the field of conservation as an upperclassman during my bachelor's and really kind of made a switch thereafter to thinking more about studying ecology and how we can protect habitats and species and some of the ways that that can happen where people actually live. Um, and I became very interested in cities as, as habitat and as harbors for biodiversity um, when I lived on the south side of Chicago. And for those of you who are not familiar with the south side, it makes the news a lot in either really excellent ways, like being the home of President Obama and, uh, you know, where the University of Chicago is located, or it makes the news in really terrible ways for having very high violence rates and, and gang affiliations or riots a few years ago after the Laquan McDonald um, police brutality case. And, and so I noticed kind of in living down there that there was a huge amount of, of green space, of open space, and yet, we weren't thinking systematically about what that space meant and how that space interacted with the lives of people who lived down there. Um, and then you, you go from this area that's got very high vacancy to areas of, of world-class cultural institutions like the University of Chicago, the Museum of Science and Industry, and they, they butt right up to one another. And so I became really interested in urban landscapes and how people and nature intersect in these areas that we're not always thinking about or talking about or, or experiencing as, as natural spaces. Um, and so when I was formulating my, my dissertation, I was really interested in vacant lots and how this green space looks in terms of the, the biological communities that it hosts and what it can mean for, for people. And when I was kind of a starry-eyed view of, you know, we can really change people's minds about this and learned very quickly that it's 
a lot more complicated than that. That cities are this inherent overlay between people and the environment that they're in, and there's this this deep sense of of place being important. Um, so I, I my project has kind of evolved from there. The research that I mostly do now is um, based on biodiversity patterns and socio-ecological systems and how human activities really shape the plant communities that we see on the ground and the mechanisms of that as well as the ramifications of that as far as something like uh, ecosystem services provision or habitat provisioning across the city. Uh, yeah, the sort of, I think probably the vacant lot situation is how a lot of scientists or um, urban ecologists that I know started really connecting to ideas of ecology or sort of thinking about ideas of ecology, uh, which is fairly interesting for me. I, I'm not from a, like the, the city proper, but I'm from the suburbs. I never once looked at like a, a vacant lot and really thought much about like the biodiversity there or really them as like these sort of green spots. So I'm always fascinated to hear like, oh, I guess, you know, these places really, you know, interested some people. Um, and, you know, certainly now that I've, I've done more research into uh, the topics, I, I understand why uh, people think they're so compelling, um, both for their, their current form, but also sort of for the potential that they have to become like even greater uh, hotspots of biodiversity and um, community uh, actions and so forth. Um, so yeah, thank you very much for your explanation. Um, so I think uh, from the research that I've done on your background, it looks like most of your past work is in plant biodiversity in cities. Um, could you talk broadly about uh, plant biodiversity? Like, why do you care about it? Why should we care about it? Uh, and then also, you know, what are the general forces that you understand that kind of shape plant biodiversity in cities? Yeah, so I guess I'll, I'll probably check back in with you about the pieces of that question. <laughs> yes. but, um, Bit of a complex question, sorry. So the kind of the importance for plant biodiversity uh, in cities is pretty similar to kind of the foundational importance of plant biodiversity elsewhere is that it's really the kind of structural foundational component of terrestrial systems in general. So the plant primary production is you know, the food for all the herbivores, which then are the food for the, the upper trophic levels. And so having a variety of those kinds of food sources is really important in supporting that upper level of, of biodiversity. Um, I think plants are also really interesting because people don't differentiate between them very well. I don't know if you've heard of the concept of plant blindness where you know, even, even people who are, are trained in sciences, maybe not you know, plant biodiversity specifically, but, mm -hmm. you know, a, a plant is a plant is a plant. Yes. Um, and I think that that really highlights some of the interesting uh, interplay between like people and the plants where they are. You know, it, it's, um, it's the difference between a maple tree and an oak tree and a you know, buckthorn to, to most people looks like it's negligible, but to, you know, to dive in deeper to those differences, um, I think really is, is a good highlight as to the importance of like looking at this from a community perspective, mm -hmm. because what you have, where you have it and in what kinds of assemblage really makes a, a difference. And, and the relationship people have with that is going to influence that. Um, so in cities, I think plants are really interesting 
um, thing to study because they're really the piece of the kind of biodiversity writ large that humans act on, um, whether it's directly by planting gardens or, or selecting trees to plant or indirectly by, you know, just generally mowing their lawns, which people don't necessarily associate with being a plant manipulation, or it's, it's completely collateral. You know, you go through and you pave a, a section to make a road. It, it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the plants that are there, but it certainly impacts them and it impacts what's able to grow there after you've come through and done, done that work. Yeah. Um, um, I just wanted to say, like, I think um, I, I really like your point here. And I think part of the reason why plant biodiversity is such a hot topic for cities um, and communities is just that it's one of the few bits of biodiversity that people actively feel like they can control. Like you might have just some planters outside. You might have a little bit of space in your neighborhood that you could plant a tree in. But you have like much less control over uh, at least direct control, certainly over like what bird species are in the area, what like large mammals are in the area. You know, people would prefer to have fewer rats uh, in, in most places uh, in, in urban areas. Yeah, but you but have very little- try doesn't always uh, effectively keep them away. Right, yeah, and you just have very little control over that, you know. Um, yeah, so I, I think that's a really good point. Yeah. Um, and I think that you know, it highlights kind of people's intrinsic connections with nature, even though you know, a lot of people may not recognize that for what it is. Like, there's a reason why people like flowers. There's a reason why people like to see trees out their window. There's a reason why, you know, physiologically we respond to those kinds of things. And so you're right, to be able to have a little bit of control over your environment, even if it's just growing a couple plants in a pot on your balcony, is, yeah. um, is really great. And then I think kind of the next layer of that is that what we plant in different places kind of lays, um, I think some other researchers call it like a template for what other kinds of species can, can utilize that area. Um, and so it's really a, a foundational link between humans and their activities and their preferences and their needs through time to the kind of larger scale biodiversity patterns that we see in cities. And if we want to think about cities as kind of a, a hotbed for conservation discussion, where you know, at, at this point, I think we're close to 80% of the United States population living in cities or metropolitan areas. Hmm. Um, and, and worldwide, we're seeing you know, this increase we're over half, in, yeah. Yeah, in urban, urban dwellers. Um, and so if we want to minimize the impact that that's going to have on global biodiversity patterns, on global ecological process, we have to think about how to, how to make the linkage between humans and everything else. And I think plants are part of the way that we do that. Yeah. Um, I think one of the other things that I think about with this too is like, uh, so I mean, like, what is it? The global population has doubled from like 3.6 billion to around 7.2 billion since like the 1970s. And a lot of that population is filtering into cities. And so uh, like these urban areas, at, oh, I should also say an urban area overall, I think has at least doubled worldwide since 1970, as in yeah. like the actual area that um, cities take up. So like not only is it like more important for us just in terms of our own uh, sense of pleasure or like, you know, happiness in cities to have these plants, but also to think about like, well, 
as these urban areas are making up more of the, the you know, uh, the, the space on the planet, we should also be thinking about trying to conserve some of that biodiversity uh, and what ways we can or promote biodiversity beyond, you know, even what was in these areas naturally. Um, yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I think that, you know, that there's a, a nuance in understanding how that growth happens that can be very city specific. Um, mm -hmm. In Chicago, in Detroit, in a lot of the American Rust Belt cities, that growth is not corresponding to dense densification within the city itself. Sure. We're seeing kind of this um, donut effect where we're leaving vacant space in the middle of the city that's been, been used, it's been built on, it's got kind of this, this urbanized legacy to it. Um, but the people aren't there anymore in yeah. the same density that they were before. And so thinking about kind of how do we, how do we tread that path moving forward mm -hmm. is, is a, an interesting question of, of biodiversity and restoration and reconciliation and, and urban, you know, just urban science kind of we're at large. Sure. Um, so I guess going back to one of the, the questions I threaded in that like four that I threw at you. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. So could you go over like, you know, from your own research or from the literature that you've read, uh, what are some of the, the primary forces that control plant biodiversity in urban or suburban areas? Yeah, so there uh, is a really great paper um, by Myla Aronson and co-authors um, that puts forth the idea that urban plant communities are formed by the series of hierarchical filters. that kind of start with what's available at a regional scale uh, based on kind of like a, a fundamental niche of the, the species in question. We have introductions that come both via natural, you know, kind of colonization mechanisms, as well as human-induced introductions on purpose or on accident um, that kind of broaden that regional species pool. And then we kind of winnow things down further and further from there um, based on competition between native species and non-native species, based on choices that people are making between what's worth keeping around and what should be actively sought to, to eliminate, um, based on things like climate change, as our cities get hotter, as our cities get drier, um, we see certain species are not gonna survive well there anymore. Um, and then there's various factors of, of land use and land conversion and you know priorities of, of human building that, um, either threaten or displace or, or change the plant communities and the, the surrounding environment, which may make it more difficult for certain species to survive. Um, so I think that, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting overlap between what people are, are doing, both bringing plants in, making changes to the environment that influences the plants, and kind of the survival and ecology of, of species interactions. Um, where some plants are better competitors, some plants are better at tolerating things like heat, like salt, um, and, and some plants are more susceptible to, to some of those risks. We also then have you know, things like outbreaks of the emerald ash borer that decimate oh, yeah. a major component of the urban forest or the urban diversity. Um, and, and so these are not static systems. This is constantly kind of an ebb and flow. Yeah, um, there's like even just going through the the various forces so i mean climate change is uh, another kind of interesting driver that also affects these urban areas even though they're relatively 
um, controlled, but some of the, like, I think it's maple that is kind of leaving and moving farther north uh, in the United States. Because I remember when I was over at University of Connecticut, there was some discussion about like, well, the maple is kind of leaving the state uh, under at least like the current management practices and climate, um, because much of the state is just open forest. And if it's not being actively managed for these trees, then over time succession will happen and they'll end up being replaced. Um, yeah. And then in urban areas, of course, it's, uh, it's probably much more driven, well, not necessarily much more, but in many places, much more driven just by human taste and um, initiatives to actually promote these uh, sort of biodiversity or these hotspots of biodiversity. Um, well, I think there's also an interesting kind of time lag when you talk about something like that and the human preferences and things. Mm -hmm. Like, um, you know, we, we planted, so right now I'm working um, primarily in Baltimore and they're, they're a little bit concerned about the maples as well. And like 25% of the street trees that the city of Baltimore has are maples. Mm. And so there, there's some concern about that being you know, uh, in the next decade or so being very susceptible to loss sure. uh, from climate change. And the, the question of how do we do something about this now so that we don't see you know, major pockets of loss is certainly an element of things, but this, these trees were planted, you know, potentially decades ago. And so the, the projection into the future is, is challenging. Yeah. Um, yeah. And even just like, it's not just a simple matter of replacing those trees with something that's more tolerant to it because it's going to complete, you're going to pick like a younger tree. It's going to alter the sort of uh, canopy and these sort of, how would I describe this? The sort of aesthetic appeal of these systems um, right. for at least some time. Uh, one other, I guess, kind of interesting contrast, or I try to, so I live in Phoenix currently, and uh, Phoenix is very interesting for many reasons. One of them is that the city actually ends up being greener uh, than the surrounding area. So plant uh, density in some of the neighborhoods is certainly or not density necessarily, but biodiversity is certainly higher in some of the neighborhoods than it would be yeah. in the surrounding desert. There's certainly more shade from uh, certain types of trees. Uh, but, and like part of the reason that we have this biodiversity here is that we have a very controlled system where we are actively watering a lot of these places. So it, it's kind of like we're pretty well set up for maintaining the trees that we have as long as we have the water supply we do but number one um we shouldn't take that uh for granted uh, certainly with phoenix's expansion and our uh, long-term droughts uh, but then also uh, we are still facing issues with rising temperatures and uh, some of these plants certainly are going to be potentially too stressed in, in the summer months as these long hot spells where it's over like 115 degrees uh, end up lengthening or becoming more common. Uh, yeah, so. it's definitely a concern. And, uh, and it's, it's hard to know, too, and I think that there's a you know, pretty active um, research contingency who's trying to understand where within the city we see these, these yeah. risks being heightened. Because not all, you know, not all neighborhoods, not all blocks, not all you know, regions of a city are experiencing stresses the same way. And so there's, there's a real interaction there between the, the 
priorities of the city in the past and where mm -hmm. they've invested in development in infrastructure um, and where you know there where we have concentrations of people who are renting versus who own their own property what size those parcels are and sure. how much is, is older construction versus new construction so there's really a lot of a lot of like socio-ecological interplay there between what's going to be sustainable through time what's going to be susceptible to to loss and who's going to bear the brunt of that yeah i was actually going to uh, touch on this potentially later, but it may as well now. So the, I, one of the more interesting parts about urban biodiversity, especially given projections of climate change here in Lake Phoenix, is the sort of social sustainability of a lot of these uh, green plantings and like these biodiversity hotspots across the city. Because Phoenix already has an interesting legacy of letting a lot of the uh, trees and the canopy cover in uh, many of the poor neighborhoods uh, die because it was on public land and then uh, those areas were deprioritized for maintenance and uh, the private owners either had no actual ownership over or not ownership is the long term uh, no option for stewardship over these trees or mm -hmm. these green spaces and they ended up dying off uh, so these sort of social decisions uh, are also extremely critical given these other pressures of climate change and um, yeah, just the natural situation of the city. Interesting, and we see in Baltimore some kind of interesting social ties there too, where there's some communities, especially um, communities of color, who even you know if they have the space for trees, they don't want them. Um, there's some negative associations with trees, yeah. given that, you know the history of, of racism in the city and segregation in the city. Um, there's also the the concern that to come in and plant a tree is not really doing them all that much help if they then are responsible for watering and cleaning up after sure. the tree and, and bearing the brunt of that, that care burden. And so, you know, there's lots of well-meaning groups who think that tree planting is the answer to everything, but there's a lot less foresight into the, how are we going to make sure that this is maintained? How are we going to make sure that this doesn't become, you know, an extra burden on communities that are already burdened? Yeah. Uh, that's a whole line of research that is absolutely fascinating um, and extremely relevant because there's so many efforts, especially with like green infrastructure projects and greening of cities where you really do need to take these social considerations and these differences between um, socioeconomic statuses and preferences in, into consideration. Um, yeah. But I guess to uh, get more on topic of your own work, um, so I researched a paper that you wrote called Management Effects on Plant Community and Functional Assemblages in Chicago's Vacant Lots, which was published in Nature Scientific Reports. No, uh, I think that was in uh, Applied Vegetation Science. Uh, you are right. This was a different paper. Excuse me. Um, okay. Yeah. So anyway, well, I mean, good prompting. Uh, can you talk a bit about your paper? Um, you know, what was the, the basis for that research and what were your um, primary findings with it? Sure. Um, so going into this paper, or this project, I was really interested in the effects of, of mowing, really, on plant community assemblage. Um, so for those of you who haven't spent much time in vacant lots, which I don't know what this followership is, is like <laughs> some of you, some of you may. Some professionals. But, um, yeah. 
the, there's a huge variety within this one particular land type, especially in Chicago, of what the lots look like. Um, that some of them are really mown low and maintained to be kind of nice supplemental lawns. Um, some of them are really overgrown, some of them are fenced, some of them are not. And so kind of within this, this highly variable land use, um, it's kind of like a natural experiment in a city of, of looking at you know, how do some of these things affect what we find in a lot? And can we, based on what a lot looks like, make predictions about what kind of species we might find there? Um, and so I had originally approached it from a mowing question, um, thinking about you know, how often does a lot get mowed and how does that dictate what kinds of species we were going to find there? And I was thinking, you know, grasses are really well suited to mowing. We might find more grasses in lots that are mowed more frequently. Um, and so we obtained records on mowing from the city of Chicago. They are um, you know, big picture responsible for all these lots that are owned by the city. That's not to say there's not a lot of kind of under other other action happening by by neighbors of the lots, um, but they they maintain records of of when certain lots were mowed. And an interesting thing about Chicago is that their lots are not mowed on a schedule. They're really mowed more often when local residents call in. So we had a huge variety of of mowing kind of regimes. Um, that we were interested in in looking at in this paper. Um, and surprisingly, kind of as we were going through the, the analysis of looking at lots that were mowed regularly, not lots that were almost never mowed, and comparing the, the two, we weren't finding a lot of differences in, in plant community hmm. assemblage or um, plant functional uh, groupings, and when I'm talking about functional groupings, we really kind of use thing use use that that term fairly broadly. So we looked at woody plants, we looked at forbs, and we looked at grasses. Um, we looked at whether they were native plants or they were introduced plants. And when we're talking about mowing, we didn't find any any perceptible differences mm -hmm. um, in these plant communities. And so we kind of went back to the drawing board and we we're thinking like, what else? You know, clearly there's a huge amount of variation here. What else is, is interacting with the mowing or modulating the mowing? Like what else can we, can we think about in terms of, of what might be changing these plant communities? And we decided mm -hmm. that, that thinking about fencing might also be a really interesting um, mechanism and driver of, of plant change because we know that you know, fences are, are physically obstructive. It's hard to get a lawnmower up close to them, um, kind of keeps people out. And it also is a structure that allows things like birds to perch on it. And it allows, you know, certain, certain types of animals to kind of pass in a, a linear fashion next to it, but not to cross over it. Yeah. Um, and so we thought that kind of that structural element might, might be interesting to evaluate too. And when we looked at the effects of fencing on um, the plant community, we found a pretty profound effect. Um, we found that fence lines, um, so within a meter of a fence, we were seeing um, a much higher diversity of woody plants. And many of the woody plants that are growing in cities, even though they're kind of weedy, are native to the region. So it also kind of drove a, a difference in a higher proportion of species that are 
are kind of biogeographically native to the Chicago region. Um, and so that was a pretty interesting finding that this kind of structural element of having a fence there, and it didn't necessarily matter if it was a chain link fence or a, a panel like security fence or a, a privacy fence. Um, the, the fence lines really were hosting more shrubby, woody communities than the interiors of lots, which hmm. had a lot more forbs and grasses. Interesting. With that sort of knowledge, like, are you able to make policy recommendations or like, what do you, uh, so, I mean, there's the scientific question, like, this is interesting, certainly in terms of a, you know, the, the sort of scientific uh, understanding of these forces in cities. But I was wondering, you know, with that sort of information, do you have discussions or talking points, like if you're talking with a city official, um, in terms of making recommendations based on that, or... Yeah, so it's it's a an interesting question and one mm -hmm. that I've thought a lot about, and I, you know, I, I don't know that I'm confident in giving a recommendation because it totally sure. depends on what the goal is. Yeah, and in these neighborhoods, um, a lot of mostly vacant lots are perceived to be a bad thing. They're mm -hmm. they're blights on the community. They are full of garbage. They harbor pests, etc. And so having kind of a rough, woody growth around the edge probably contributes to that perception. But sure. on the other hand, you know, shrub habitats are really limited in cities. They're very important for birds who are coming through the area. Um, and so there's, you know, there's the question of what, what is your goal here? And so it, it, it's very difficult to kind of assess a priority or to, to provide a strategy or a policy without a priority in mind. Um, but one of the things that I do kind of advocate for and this stems a little bit from the time I spent in, in Germany um, working is this idea of wild urban nature. Mm -hmm. And the, the concept essentially is that plants are, are adaptable and will find ways to grow in cities. They may not be the, the plants you brush out to buy from a nursery or install in a restoration or, or anything like that. No, but people any, love ragweed. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's any plant, plant growth they believe is an inherently good thing because you're providing some level of ecosystem services, some mm -hmm. element of shading, some element of evapotranspirative cooling, mm -hmm. um, photosynthesis, net primary production, et cetera. And so if you can find a way to, to foster plants establishing on their own, they're going to be well genetically suited to a site. It's very low maintenance to install and upkeep. Um, and you're getting those ecosystem services from them without really a huge degree of input. And so I think that kind of one of the, the interesting outputs of this study is the idea that this this unique community will develop along fence lines if they're there and if sure. we're not you know going through with a weed whacker or herbicide and, and killing them off we can we can get this shrub community to to grow and and provide that kind of habitat in this part of the city and so if we can can kind of shift our thinking from it being you know an ugly eyesore to mm -hmm. it being a predictable way to to encourage this kind of, of habitat development, then you know that's something that we could could 
understand by just looking at a lot and seeing, you know, this has a, a fence on it. We could consider this for kind of future sure. development of that. Um, I think that that idea, especially in a city like Chicago, would be kind of hard to catch on. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think there's a, a big difference in how we in the United States approach landscape management like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I mean, the another tricky thing with vacant lots and sort of, uh, I mean, these sort of like buildings that are also vacant or whatever, like there's a, a like a mathematical threshold that cities are terrified of reaching in terms of vacant or unused spaces before economically they're considered just kind of dead zones and it's very difficult for them to recover. So it's always, you know, like really difficult to be someone who's like, well, yeah, but the plant biodiversity is, you know, great here. And you're telling that to a city official who really just wants like economic growth and more tax income in the city and things like that. And that's not to discount, you know, certainly the importance of all of that. But it is, you know, we we do want biodiversity in cities. We do want economic growth in cities. But we need to figure out, you know, a sort of more balanced and uh, holistic understanding of, of what our needs are and what the actual trade-offs are. Right. And I think that in, you know, especially in relation to vacant lots, it's a, it's super important also to consider the risks of gentrification yeah. on, um, on these neighborhoods that vacant lots are, are common in because you know, to come in with guns blazing to, to revitalize an area can do a lot of damage to the people who are living there. Yeah, absolutely. Vulnerable. And so, you know, thinking about vacant lots as being kind of valuable for biodiversity themselves, I think is actually a, a, a powerful way to think about that because it doesn't necessarily say we need to make huge sweeping changes to these spaces for them to be valuable. And there's sure, some yeah. interesting research that suggests that um, there are very, very low cost kind of social interventions that can, can take place in vacant lots that really help to change. Um, I know a lot of cities doing like the large lots program. Um, Chicago specifically was geared at, you know, residents on a block could purchase a vacant lot on their block for a dollar. And they were then responsible for the taxes moving forward. Um, And they had to, to provide upkeep in the lots. And after a certain amount of time, they could sell it or build on it. Um, But even just that, that fairly symbolic transfer of, of ownership of the lot, you know, for, for the exchange of a dollar, um, they found reduces things like public urination or dumping on yeah. the lots because then it's a it's a resident of your community. It's someone who you are directly in community with who whose space that is. And so um, to try to to manipulate not manipulate that's not the right word, but try to leverage kind of those social powers can do a lot to help um, help us think about vacant lots in a more positive sense. Sure. And I mean, the the sort of transfer of ownership gets at the actual problem uh, of gentrification, which is just that the value that is created by these spaces isn't captured by the people who live around it. It's captured by the potential uh, landlords and things like that who own the spaces for these places or for these people to actually rent. 
Um, in a different podcast, <laughs> I don't know that I'm going to do it on the, the Future Cities podcast necessarily, but there's some really interesting explorations of, I believe it's Norway that has sort of like a, a public land ownership trust uh, that's basically all improvements uh, or like all increase in terms of land value is captured by this trust and then it's distributed back uh, among the population more evenly and I'm really toying around or I, I'm trying to like research this and understand the economic forces of it a lot better because I mean green gentrification and vacant lots is a big deal and I work in urban spaces as well and I'm pushing for the conservation of these sort of urban wetlands and so the idea that I'm creating this protected green space uh, that the value of which could be potentially captured primarily by you know developers as opposed to the community that lives around there is deeply troubling and I'm, I'm really spending a lot of time looking into um, alternative conceptions for either land ownership or alternative ways of distributing the sort of in uh, value um, of these landscapes because I mean the point of our research is like these this stuff is valuable we are actively valuing and we're recommending increasing the value of these spaces and that's not the problem the problem is that it's not being captured by the people around it so yeah that's super um, interesting i'd be interested yeah. to learn more about that um, there's a couple of good papers out there i'll sort it out eventually but uh it might be a little too, i mean it's norway it's not that socialist but it, <laughs> it might be a little <laughs> too politically charged for this but we'll see um yeah, anyway yeah. so you mentioned um actually speaking of uh, alternative political philosophies. You mentioned uh, in our conversation earlier and um, kind of briefly alluded to it in your answer there that you previously did work on uh, in, in Germany looking at um, how the Berlin Wall uh, has this sort of legacy effect on plant assemblages or biodiversity uh, within Germany. Would you mind talking about that? Yeah, yeah. So um, this was part of a Fulbright fellowship that I did um, went to Germany for 10 months and worked in Berlin. Um, and it's not, so it's not directly like downtown urban, but it's kind of peri-urban and, and definitely a human legacy effect. So um, during the, the Cold War, the Soviet um, occupation of, of East Germany was you know, socially very divisive. And, um, the Berlin Wall was kind of erected to to keep people in who were in West Berlin, which was the the capital capitalist um, side of the capital, which was you know occupied by the French, the British, and the United States. Um, keep them isolated from the kind of surrounding sea of of communist um, German Democratic Republic or GDR. Mm -hmm. And the Berlin Wall went up very quickly, um, and it really kind of was globally iconic for being divisive and, and being kind of this this forefront of the the tensions in those economic systems that were happening um during the 60s 70s 80s and 60s 70s and 80s yeah it was a physically um, dividing line between the the two competing <laughs> sort right, of political right. systems yeah and you know i know that the the discussion at least in um the last few years in the United States has been very divisive as well. And there's been talk about, you know, border wall in the south, southern border of Mexico, and there's yeah. been some action on, on installing that and, you know, trying not to get too, too contemporarily political. <laughs> um, 
I was really interested in, in what does, what does nature do when you cut it off like that yeah. and what kind of legacies still exist. Um, and so kind of in my, in my research before going to Germany, I identified a large stretch of forest that, um, has been forest for a long time and, and the wall, um, ran through it. And so I was hmm. really interested in taking kind of a fine scale approach to, to looking at this forest and, and seeing whether there were any differences in the biodiversity patterns on what was the Soviet side, um, which is now in the state of Brandenburg. Um, versus what was the, the capitalist side, which is now in Berlin, within Berlin city limits. Um, so I got to Germany and quickly realized that it was a lot more complicated than that. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And that you know, <laughs> at, at this snapshot of just one forest was really not going to be very replicable and, and needed to kind of blow the project up in order to focus back in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, with the help of... Ingo Kowarik and his team over there, I was able to identify um, seven sites, seven forested sites that were forests both in 1928 and two, 2018. So probably some turnover in the middle there, but mm-hmm. the land use is kind of similar um, before the 20th century and after the 20th century. And we were able to identify uh, five sites that had been divided by the wall and two sites that were along the same border now um, between Berlin and Brandenburg that never were walled. So they okay. were kind of... Um, Got your control. Yeah, uh, of sorts. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we went out and conducted transects in these sites um, that extended across the border 250 meters in either direction. And we took kind of this um, these surveys of, of herbaceous vegetation and of tree vegetation or tree community and structure um, on, on opposite sides of the border at 10 meters from the border, 50 meters from the border, 150 meters from the border, and 250 meters from the border. The idea being that you know, if there are differences between the, the biodiversity or the structure that are because of the Berlin Wall, there'll be a difference in the community turnover as you go you know, 100 meters or 200 meters away on the same side uh, on the same state side, so either in Brandenburg or in Berlin, versus mm-hmm. crossing that border. Okay. Um, and so we you know, identified lots of plants, counted lots of trees. Um, this paper is, is still in preparation, but um, there were some pretty interesting findings. Um, we found that biodiversity on the whole, um, so just species richness was much higher in sites that had never been walled versus sites that had been walled. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there's, there's certainly some site level confounding factors in there that are difficult to pick out and will sure. probably be another paper down the line. <laughs> um, but what was the most interesting to me was that when we looked at those kind of crossing the border questions, we saw different patterns in turnover a different effect of the border um, when we were in walled sites and non-walled sites and between the herbaceous vegetation and the trees. Okay. So, I mean, with that, I think that's pretty much all the questions that I have. So I just want to take a moment and say thank you. Uh, Once again, this is uh, Elsa Anderson over at the Cary Institute. Is that correct? Yes. You're still there. Good. 
um, yeah, thank you so much for stopping by. Future Cities Podcast is an outreach effort brought to you by the Urban Resilience to Extremes Sustainability Research Network, or UREX as we usually refer to it. To learn more about UREX, visit www.sustainability.asu.edu forward slash urban resilience. If you have any questions, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at futurecitiespodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at futurecitiespod. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.